Welcome back to another Crypto Daily 3 at 3. What's going on, guys? It is Thursday, September 19th, and today we are going to talk about a couple uh, actions of uh, regulators and U.S. law enforcement clapping back on bad behavior in the crypto industry. Second, we're going to talk about uh, the role and responsibility of companies in the crypto space. Should they be funding specifically uh, open source contributions? What are their uh, obligations to participate in um, in this industry? Uh, so we're going to talk about that. And then number three, we're going to talk about um, North Korea launching a crypto and uh, companies looking at Argentina as a potential crypto zone. And basically just we're going to be coming back to this question of the political nature of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Um, but let's start with the regulators clapping back. So uh, yesterday there are a couple different stories in the news that reflected this theme. Um, the first was that the SEC was charging ICO box with securities violations. Uh, so first of all, don't use an acronym that's popular at the moment and then stick box on it. I feel like that should be a finable offense all on its own. Um, second, uh, this is basically so right down the pike of kind of the scammy side of, of ICOs. Um, so the, the quote here said uh, from the complaint, defendants claimed that ICO box would be successful and the ICO's tokens valuable due to the efforts of ICO box's management team who would curate potential digital asset projects and attract 100 plus clients per month as of the date of ICO Box's offering, ICO Box had yet to support a single token sale to completion. Um, basically, they're just laying out the Howey test in such clear terms. Uh, common enterprise, effort of someone else to create profit, promise of profits. Um, so uh, really clear, right down the pike sort of regulation. Catherine Wu summed it up. She said, this whole thing is so scammy. It really made me cringe to read the complaint. So much 2017-18 ICO flashbacks. Pro tip, please don't give your money to anyone who claims to be a vision director for a shitty ICO project and also multiple CEO positions of random unclear companies. Um, I think the point that Catherine makes, which is really relevant, is that uh, when things are too good to be true or they sound too good to be true, they are too good to be true. Um, and there was a weird aberrational window uh, in which this sort of thing could get away with. It was really like six months-ish, uh, maybe a little bit longer, but the core was a really short amount of time. Uh, and... You know, I would love if the crypto industry never goes through another phase like that. I can't imagine that it'll go through exactly the same thing because we'll find new ways to be weird. Um, however, if it does, let's be better prepared next time to uh, not try to ride the wave in quite the same way. Um, but with that, let's move on to the second. Uh, it's not even regulatory action. It's law enforcement action. Um, so this comes from Mike Dudas. Uh, this story is bonkers. Even an early Ethereum advisor, Stephen Nairoff, uh, was charged with good old-fashioned mafia-style extortion of a cryptocurrency project. Um, so this is uh, kind of a crazy uh, story. Um, so let's actually go back over to Catherine for a second. So she says, TLDR, Nayarov and his associate, as advisors to an ICO project, threatened to destroy that project and the founder's children if they weren't paid an extra 10,000 Ethereum. That's 10,000 Ethereum, not $10,000 for those of you watching. Uh, Nayarov's associates falsely claimed to be a former member of the United States military and a former government agent who had worked with the NSA, the FBI, and the CIA. And then it gets weirder. Uh, 
Uh, in the middle of the night, the defendant walked into the room where Jane Doe was sleeping by herself. The defendant pulled up the lights, pulled up a chair to the bed where she was sleeping, and told her in sum and substance that if company one uh, did not agree to his demands, which among other things included a demand for $10 million and a large amount of company one tokens, then quote, we will crush you by among other things, driving down the price of company one's tokens. At some point later that night, the defendant also entered the room. He told Jane Doe in sum and substance that he would destroy her and company one, but that he did not want to and asked Jane Doe if she wanted to in sum and substance thrive or be destroyed. Shortly thereafter, the two defendants demanded that company one provide them a purported 10,000 Ethereum, 10,000 ETH loan. Uh, so this is just absolutely nuts. Um, Meltem here says this was the best known secret in crypto for the last two years. So much more will come out. It's more court documents are filed. Uh, and, you know, Catherine makes the important point, as did Jade Chervinsky elsewhere, that we live in a society where uh, people are presumed innocent uh, until proven guilty. So I don't want to get too much into the, the the people themselves behind this. They'll have their day in court. Um, but what I will say is that this type of behavior, right, we are involved in creating uh, what is potentially a disruptive, transformative, um, and immensely valuable to the world new approach to money, to business, to networks, um, and that this type of activity, to the extent that this is real uh, and to the extent that this is true, which it certainly seems like the case is pretty laid out, um, can't be allowed to exist. We can't just recreate the same structures, right? Uh, when we talk about accidentally reintroducing centralization into these platforms, um, that's that's bad enough, right? We're fighting against that. We're fighting to allow people to engage trustlessly, permissionlessly, uh, to not have to surrender undue data. Like these are the things that we're fighting for day in and day out as we try to recreate a financial system that's more equitable, that's more open, that's more transparent. Uh, so then to layer on top of it, this sort of like just bulldozing extortiony uh power like it's gonna happen uh, we're let's not be naive this sort of thing anytime that you're introducing money uh and guess what the recreation of money has a lot of money involved you're gonna see this sort of stuff um but man let's try as a industry to stamp it out as as aggressively as we can uh so that that's my little soapbox on that um let's move into another area for soapboxing uh what the obligations of companies who are building on crypto should be uh okay so wells fargo uh announced uh, a couple days ago, the, how they would be getting into the cryptocurrency industry. Basically, uh, news came out that they were developing a dollar link stable coin that will uh, be Wells Fargo Digital Cash is the name. It'll be used as a pilot, uh, as an initial settlement layer across borders, yada, yada, yada. So this is kind of a similar thing we've seen before. Uh, companies experimenting with a blockchain and a, um, and a stable coin to uh, facilitate cross-border transactions in a more efficient, cost-effective, faster way. Um, so this is, we've seen this happen a lot, right? So there's JPM coin, uh, there's lots and lots of versions of this that are happening. And um, this, kind of what I wanted to say is that no knock on, uh, on Wells Fargo, obviously, this is a battleground, right? Now we've talked about the trifurcation of crypto before, how we're kind of dividing the world into the permissionless chains, the permission corporate chains, and the government, uh, you know, surveillance money on the other hand. And it's, I think we should expect that you're going to see um, huge amounts of this type of effort. Um, but I do think that, uh, 
there's a, a, a meaningful question to me, you know, in this case, they're building on, you know, kind of their own proprietary thing. So it is what it is. However, there are a lot of companies and for-profit companies that are building on top of permissionless chains and building on top of open source software. And there's an interesting question to me about what we believe the expectation uh, should be on, on those companies for how they support the uh, the protocols that they're building on and the protocols that they're benefiting from. Um, because there isn't a company to hold rights that they have to pay access to. There isn't a company to demand X and Y, Z sort of tribute. Uh, it's really just about social pressure. And so what got me thinking about this is two things. First, um, I saw this tweet from Udi yesterday uh, where he said, I'll probably get it blocked by half of my followers for this, but this is pretty cool. Whatever you think of Grin, it's evident that this is a true donation with no strings attached. And I hope more exchanges commit to plans like these, maybe for Bitcoin too, cough. So this is a Poloniex. Uh, tweeted out, we've made our seventh donation to the Grin General Fund as part of our year-long commitment to support open source development of the Grin Mimblewimble ecosystem. Uh, so basically, if you'll remember, uh, Grin launched to much fanfare in January of this year. Uh, it was a purported fair launch, right? It was kind of the narrative peak of the idea of fair launch where there was no pre-mine, there was no pre-sale. Uh, everyone theoretically had an equal shot to get in. Now, uh, there's a whole question about whether there's any such thing as a fair launch possible anymore because because huge amounts of VC dollars went into specialized mining operations for Grin. Um, but a couple weeks after that fair launch, uh, which had gotten so many people excited, there was a, an interesting moment in which one of the developers who goes by Yeastplume uh, was having trouble fundraising. Basically, he wanted to go full-time. He was looking for $50,000 to support six months of full-time work on Grin, uh, and he just put it to a kind of a crowdsourcing platform uh, in order to get that rather than you know it coming from there's no founder's reward or anything like that in, in the Grin, um, the way that Grin is, is mined and, and built. So uh, after, I don't know, a week or two, he'd only raised something like $3,000. And so you contrast this with the tens of millions of dollars that estimatedly went into VC-backed mining operations for Grin um, and this total lack of support for people building the fundamental protocol. And uh, Ignotus Peveral, who's the, that's the obviously the pseudonym for the guy who kind of initiated the Grin project, went to town and, you know, made a big stink about it. And Yeast Plume ended up, uh, Michael is his actual name, ended up getting funding. Uh, however, it remained or it left the, the larger question of what is the right way to fund open source development uh, and, and open protocols that don't have a company behind them. This has been a, a recurrent theme through the year. Um, so you've seen, obviously, a lot of the effort around DAOs, so Moloch DAO and Meta Cartel has been one answer to this question. Uh, those those are basically funding DAOs that are trying to support public infrastructure. Um, you know, in their case, on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, but again, these are these are that's uh, an evolving solution set to this question of how open source software gets funded. So Poloniex, I think, in the wake of this uh, of this Grin um, hullabaloo, made this commitment to funding it uh, kind no strings attached for a while. And that's, I think, what Udi is referring to as really cool is this idea that, you know, Poloniex is a for-profit company that takes advantage of and is built on top of uh, the, the the world of, you know, permissionless chains. And it's reasonable, I think, to ask that type of company to be involved in supporting the health of the ecosystem. Um, so that's a really interesting indicator. Now, there is uh, one actor that I think is pretty exemplary like this in the Bitcoin ecosystem now, which all of you guys 
guys will know, uh, is Square Crypto, right? So Square Crypto came about a couple months ago when basically Jack uh, Dorsey, who has been a, a loud and vocal supporter of um, Bitcoin in, partic in particular, uh, effectively said that they felt that it was important uh, to, to be involved in supporting the development of the Bitcoin protocol um, and committed to it in a financial way, not just kind of a, uh, a, a moral way, right? Or a publicity type of way. And so they created Square Crypto and the mandate of Square Crypto was to be this little squat team, uh, funding body, whatever it wanted to be in order to help Bitcoin. And so the hires that they've made, just a few hires so far, uh, are their mandate is to figure out what is best for Bitcoin, what they think is most important for Bitcoin, and to just do it, right? And it doesn't have to be about Square's bottom line. They're not held accountable to how it makes money for Square. Um, and so recently at uh, the uh, Baltic Honey Badger, Hoddle Hoddle's Baltic Honey Badger of uh, uh, last weekend, I think, uh, they announced that they were giving $100,000 to BTC Pay Server. And, uh, and they wrote this really interesting thread about it. So let me go through some of the parts of the thread. They said, we're giving money, a bunch of money to BTC Pay Server, a product that appears to be in direct competition with our mothership. It isn't. Here's why. Everyone benefits from open sourcing, often in ways that are intangible. And as Bitcoin's ubiquity increases, existing payment companies have to make a choice, adapt or be left behind. Square got where it is by embracing and adapting to change. This isn't an investor in a competitor. It's an investment in the future, something that Square obviously has a stake in. Uh, so that's really, really good. And they go on to talk specifically about why this company has uh, is such a powerful actor and why uh, this sort of UX gap that keeps open source back is a huge barrier that they're trying to break down. But this is a really powerful signal to the market uh, that they are committed to the health of the ecosystem as a whole and that they recognize that they um, the benefit that they're getting, and they are getting a huge benefit, Cash App is now one of the biggest ways that people buy Bitcoin. Uh, it is a driver of revenue for Cash App. Um, they understand that it is in their interest uh, to make this ecosystem as healthy as they can and that the best way that their alignment is more than uh, just short term in terms of, you know, every dollar having to be accountable to a short term objective. It's long term in the health of Bitcoin. Um, I think that that is a uh, an all too unique point of view uh, from major companies right now. And I would really love for it to just become the norm that these very traditional in some ways for-profit companies that are built on top of the Bitcoin and the crypto ecosystem see as their obligation some amount of commitment to open source funding. And I don't think that we have to be prescriptive about what that looks like. I don't think it has to be the same for every company. I don't think that there's minimums in terms of the amount spent. Uh, I think it's about acknowledging the new type of business ecosystem that we're playing in that has, um, it has to have a relationship between for-profit companies and non-company, non-profit, whatever you want to call it, protocols. Um, so I encourage all of us to be uh, advocates for that point of view. Great way to do that is by supporting companies like Square Crypto, uh, like Poloniex, who are, are trying to innovate that and being loud about it, right? So um, with that, let's go on to number three. So uh, if you guys watched Narrative Watch this week, um, it was called Bitcoin is Political. And basically, uh, I was talking about how in the wake of Libra and the explosion of interest in central bank digital currencies uh, that has come from Libra um, and the questions about Bitcoin and, and just non-sovereign currencies that it has arisen, that uh, Bitcoin is inherently a political force. And so um, I revisited this topic uh, earlier this week because Naval told 
uh, tweeted out something really interesting. He said, crypto may be an industry that is more valuable with a small set of users that don't attract nation state attention than with a large set who do. And basically, this is a point that has come up uh, uh, frequently in, in the crypto community, which is that um, we continue in some ways to fly under the radar. And part of the reason that we may have not seen uh, this sort of incredible antagonistic response to Bitcoin from the US government in particular, as we did to Libra, is that it uh, doesn't it doesn't raise their hackles. It doesn't seem threatening in the same way, right? Like the narrative that they're adopting is uh, that it's a digital gold, it's an alternative store of value, and that doesn't compete with uh, with the dollar uh, in the world stage. Um, they're worried about Libra because Libra, as a stable coin that has a basket of currencies, uh, seems to compete in a more direct way. It's meant to be a unit of account. It's meant to be a medium of exchange. And what's more, it, it is led ultimately, despite the protestations uh, of the the Libra Association by a figure in Mark Zuckerberg who the government is extremely wary of uh, based on his his power, uh, based on the power of 2 million, or sorry, 2 billion people around the world who use his products. Um, and so uh, again, to me, the, 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 what this has demonstrated over the last few months is that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies more broadly are a political force. And my point in acknowledging this is to um, allow us to understand that that is simply the case uh, and that it will it has implications for what we do. Uh, it may have strategic implications for, for what we want to drive towards, the narratives that we want to tell, the stories we want to tell. So uh, this brought up a lot of interesting questions. Um, so I had a number of people push back and say, no, Bitcoin is apolitical. Uh, and uh, and so Vortex here, he says, the, pro the protocol itself is apolitical. What the end users project onto the protocol is another story. Um, we had uh, Elizabeth Hunker who said, BTC is apolitical. Don't be like libertarians and transhumanists who make adoption and experimentation way more difficult by insisting on value being contrarian more than they value being effective. And so uh, I, I want to make sure that the, the point is is really clear and then give a couple examples. Um, Vortex actually even got this. He says, understand your point though, that Bitcoin will shake the very foundations of the nation state, which is very, very political. And that's exactly the point that I was trying to make. I think that by its existence, by creating an alternative for the first time in modern history to this sovereign money uh, paradigm, Bitcoin is inherently a political force. Simply by adding competition to the market for uh, for for what the nature of money is, it is inherently a political force. And what's more, the way that people are adopting it and the way that different jurisdictions and polities around the world are adopting it makes it a political force. So just a couple quick examples of that. One, uh, a lot of people were tweeting about this yesterday. Uh, North Korea is planning a Bitcoin-like cryptocurrency to sidestep sanctions. Um, and this came in a report from Vice. Uh, and basically, the the... <laughs> Like the Petro, the new crypto may be pegged to an asset within North Korea. Now we're in the phase of studying the goods that will give value to it. Um, so uh, this is, it's, it's the, the reference to the Petro, I think, is where a lot of people went in the first place, right? Venezuela created a Petro-backed <clears throat> cryptocurrency that so far basically no one has used except um, through basically mandate of the government uh, doing some shady things in Venezuela in terms of uh, having pensioner accounts, have them switch from, <coughs> excuse me, pesos to uh, 
to the the petrodollar or whatever the whatever it's called the petro token rather and um so uh, this is I, I think it's hard to deny that this is a political act right they're trying to get around sanctions uh to try to avoid sanctions um that is a a political force right and to the extent that the u.s regulatory regime sees this sort of action and sees countries that are uh, being sanctioned use cryptocurrencies um to to go around sanctions uh, they it, it becomes an even more political force. Now I will say that um, <clears throat> there is at least some. Uh, I, I think it's it's better that they try to do this with their own, uh, you know, kind of localized cryptocurrency, the North Korea buck or whatever it ends up being, than using Bitcoin to evade sanctions. When it comes to where the U.S. points its ire, however, um, again, this to me reinforces this idea that uh, this is political, right? That cryptocurrency is inherently uh, political force. Let's talk about another one. So last week, it was all about France and Germany blocking uh, Libra, but being open and interested in their own cryptocurrencies, their own kind of blockchain projects. Well, that was reinforced this week. Germany passes national policy to explore blockchain, but limits stable coins. So uh, effectively, they are want to dig into all the implications of blockchain from money to also identity to voting or whatever, right? Like they want to look at this full set of things. However, they've also been vocal about actually being interested in whether a their own version of a digital currency makes sense. However, they do not want the competition of private stable coins. Uh, uh, they have been clear about that, right? And they are, uh, yeah, so they, here's the quote. They said, in principle, there is a regulatory regime for stable coins in the European Union. At the European and international level, the federal government will work to ensure that stable coins do not become an alternative to state currencies. Uh, so they are inclusive of everything, not just Facebook's Libra. They do not want a private stable coin competing for money in Germany. Again, this is political. Like this is a political act. It's about the power that the government has to print money. Uh, crypto is political. Uh, here's another one. Um, we have uh, Huobi expanding crypto exchange to Argentina amid peso devaluation. Um, obviously, I've talked about it a lot. The uh, the peso has been uh, hammered over the last couple of years. Um, Argentina is in uh, again uh, kind of a never ending uh, economic turmoil in some ways. And um, what has happened recently is that they have reinstituted currency controls. When the current president came to power, they got rid of currency controls that had been part of the province of the previous regime, um, and now they're back. There's limits to uh, basically how much money can be moved um, out of the Argentinian peso at any given time. And that's their way of trying to prevent peso flight effectively to the U.S. dollar or to uh, something else. And... Uh, What's happening is that people are starting, it seems, to use cryptocurrencies to work around these sort of currency controls. Um, and uh, and you have the uh, you know an example here of uh, an exchange that is basically taking advantage of that and trying to make it easier for Argentines to do that. Um, uh, Cami Russo, Camila Russo. Uh, pointed out that in Argentina, DAI is trading at 71.6 pesos while the US dollar rate is at 56. That's a huge premium to hold digital dollars. Reason, tightening currency controls. So Argentina's dollar premiums. Black market USD is at a 7% premium. Bitcoin is at a 12% premium, which is something we talked about last week. And DAI is at a 27% premium. Um, so the point here is that uh, a government, uh, in this case Argentina, is trying to institute currency controls in order to limit the, the kind of free-falling value of its own currency. 
And uh, what's happening is that the value of these alternative assets is rising compared to other parts of the world uh, because of that. That is a political force. That is the definition of a political force. Um, there's something, simply no way to get around it. So uh, again, for me, the point about all, of all of this is not that um, these protocols have uh, po like inherent politics, right? You don't need to be a libertarian. You don't even need to care about Austrian economics. You don't need to have uh, support any one type of person, candidate, belief system, whatever. And that's part of the beauty. The, the permissionless nature of a system means that you don't have to uh, think anything like anyone else who's involved and you can still use that asset. Um, that's not what I'm saying when I'm saying Bitcoin is political. What I'm saying is that this is this entire industry, this entire movement, this entire ecosystem is a political force, whether we recognize it or not. Uh, and I think it behooves us to recognize it and to understand the implications of our actions in that context, to understand how regulators and governments are going to perceive those actions, to perceive these new assets, uh, to the extent that we want to be um, actually viable in the market uh, and and build these products into something that can be used in the mainstream, uh, we have to understand the context that they're coming in and that context is political. But anyways, uh, very soapboxy today. Apologies, guys, but uh, it is what it is. It's a fall Thursday and I guess I'm thinking big. So anyways, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching as always. And uh, we'll be off tomorrow. I'm gonna be down in New York. We're doing a, a little podcast with Ryan Selkis over at Unqualified Opinions at Masari. Um, so watch for that. Uh, but otherwise, guys, I will see you on Monday for our next Narrative Watch. Peace.